Hi folks, this is Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the Kingdom of God. This is episode 87 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and by the time this airs, um, it will be Independence Day here in America. So, happy Independence Day, USA. You know, freedom is an interesting subject, and and we probably ought to talk about that at some point, Um, because God is definitely interested in freedom. Um, For freedom, Christ set us free, Paul tells us in Galatians 5.1. But freedom is a tricky thing. Um, freedom, Freedom has some different nuances to it in biblical Christianity than it sometimes does in America. And we, we ought to do a, a deep dive into, into unpacking some of that and understanding that. Um, but that day is not this day. Um, today, after I get a sip of coffee, um, it has been hot here. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't been paying attention to what it's doing in the rest of the country, but it has been awfully, awfully hot the last two weeks. Um, and this is only June. It um, it shouldn't be this hot this early. Makes me nervous for um, what August is going to be like. But we have we have passed the longest day of the year, which means the days are getting shorter. Which for me means we're moving toward fall, even though we're still in June. Um, although by the time you you hear this, it's going to be July, right? So. Anyway, I'm uh, I'm already tired of summer, but that is normal for me. Um, usually, I can bear summer up until July Fourth, and then my tolerance for summer um, completely goes away. And uh, it has started early this year. However, it's not as bad. There was one year um, when we were living in Texas. I think it was 2011. I can't remember it, but there was one year when we lived in Texas where we had 100 days in a row over 100 degrees. And I was miserable. Um, my, like I was, I was discouraged and depressed and, and it was like it, it changed, heat changes me. I can endure almost any amount of cold, but heat, heat does something to my psyche, particularly if it's long and enduring. Um, I just, I don't, I don't bear up under that very well emotionally and mentally. It just doesn't doesn't uh, work for me. Um, I've got northern blood. What can I say? Anyway, moving on. More coffee. Today, we're going to continue our series on following Jesus in the 21st century, and in particular, looking at the importance and practice of love. And I want to do two things today. Um, I want to continue building this topic by looking at 1 Corinthians 13, um, which is the love passage to end all love passages. And I want to talk about the first of two primary challenges to living out the love of God in our world. Um that, that I, the, and the one we're going to talk about today, we're going to talk about one next week, but the one we're going to talk about today, I, I think we absolutely need to do a better job at. If we're ever going to be a light to the nations, if we're going to, if we're going to make a difference in the world, if we're going to, if we're going to reclaim 
any sort of sense of um, respectability among Christianity. And I think that's what we're supposed to be in the world. So I think we're, I think we need to address this. And I think, and so we're going to talk about one of those today. And so let's just dive right in and see if we can make some headway uh, against all of this. Okay, so 1 Corinthians 13 is where we need to start. And, and 1 Corinthians 13 is obviously the, the place we often go um, when we want to get a biblical understanding of love. It is such a well-known passage. Um, we're, we're all reminded of it just about every time we attend a Christian wedding. Uh, in fact, it is probably the most often read verse at weddings in the whole Bible. So I want to just read the part that sticks out the most, although I want to say we're just reading a part of it, but really the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is significant, and it really ought to be understood in the context of chapters 12 through 14 as a whole. Um, it, 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 you, we don't do the text any favors by pulling out 1 Corinthians 13 um, and, and not seeing how it relates to chapters 12 and 14. It's in. It's there for a reason. Look at what's in chapter twelve. Look at what's what's in chapter fourteen, and ask yourself why chapter thirteen's in the right smack dab in the middle of all that. You'll learn some things. Um, but having said that, we're just going to read First uh, Corinthians thirteen four through eight, which is the verses that we all know. Okay. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It is not boastful. It is not arrogant. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. is not irritable. And does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things endures all things. Love never ends. Now, those are those are good words. Very good words. I, I used to tell young people years ago um, when they were dating to take that that list and just write it out on a on a piece of paper as a list. Put every, you know, love is patient, then on the next line, love is kind. And just write the whole thing out, except instead of writing the word love, write the name of your boyfriend or your girlfriend. And then look at that list and, and ask yourself, you know, Johnny is not rude. Well, is, is Johnny rude? Like, like Susie is, is not arrogant. Well, is, is Susie arrogant? Look at that list and ask yourself, how many of these does my boyfriend or girlfriend, particularly if you're thinking about marrying this person, how many of these do they, you know, how do they measure up against this? And if you find out that if you're dating someone who's missing more than they're hitting, well, maybe you ought to find somebody else 
to date. And particularly if you're thinking about marrying this person, maybe you really ought to think about this, right, before you jump into that. Um, but I digress. Again, this is a this is a very good picture of love. And the first thing that I want to say about this, this section that we just read, is that this is a package deal. Okay? Love is all of these things. And the reason I point that out is because ever since the Enlightenment, we in the West have, have kind of felt a compulsion in all sorts of areas to, to kind of tease things apart and analyze their all the little bits and pieces of, of everything. And sometimes we lose the whole in the process of that. And we simply cannot do that here. Love is each one of these things. But, but even more importantly, it's all of these things together. It's a package deal. And each one of these characteristics of love is defined and understood by the things it's associated with. Each piece of that splendid definition is understood by the company it keeps. For instance, what does it mean to be kind? Well, kindness, if you, if you really want to understand kindness, you, kindness is properly understood only through the lens of the rest of this list. Again, this is a package deal each piece of which is only properly understood by understanding the rest of the pieces that accompany it. So love is, is kind of like a diamond, right? This is a, this is a, a poor... Uh, illustrations like this always fall down if you think about them too much, but it, it's the best I got and we're going to go with it. It's, but it's like a diamond with all these different facets making up a whole, okay? And you only see it when you see it together. Okay. Now, having said that, we now have to talk about this word that Paul uses here for love. It's the word agape. Now, if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for very long, you have heard of agape love. And the thing Christians do almost reflexively when the subject of love comes up is we, we tend to wax eloquently about the word agape. And we talked a little bit about this last week, but but I want to I want to just underline and, and emphasize the fact that understanding love is not just a matter, as, as some Christians think, of just getting back to the true meaning of the word agape, okay? So the word agape, it, is, it, was, it was a word that it was in wide usage in the Greco-Roman world well before Christians got hold of it, okay? And the word agape in the larger Greco-Roman culture had almost as much of a checkered career in the centuries before and after Paul as our own English word love has had in the last 300 years. And I don't know if you've thought about it or not, but love, we use the word love in English in a billion different ways, right? We, we tell our wives or, or our husbands, I love you. We also say, I love this ice cream. Uh, or we say, I love TikTok, of all things. Heavens. <laughs> Um, I, I love this and I love that and and oh I love that song and and I love that movie and we you know we love all these I love this I love these socks for goodness sakes we, we we love all this little little stuff right we use the love the word love for everything in English well it was almost that way in the Greco-Roman world too okay um, and if you look at a at a Greek lexicon which is a, a Greek dictionary. Um, you will see that the word agape and its variations 
uh, had a, had a, a, a pretty wide range of meaning, um, covering things like affection, uh, erotic passion, contentment with some something or someone, um, prizing uh, something or someone highly, and and on and on, right? Sometimes agape was distinguished from the word phileo, which is another another word for love. Uh, typically, we we often translate that as friendship or brotherly love. By the way, you may not know this, but uh, do you know what the motto is for the city of Philadelphia? Philadelphia is called the city of brotherly love. Well. There's two words in Philadelphia, two Greek words. It's it's phileo, which is the love, and uh, adelphia, which is um, um, a, a cognitive brother, basically, adelphos. Okay, so brotherly love. That's the that's the word Philadelphia. Um, so that's sometimes agape was distinguished from that, but sometimes the two appear to have been used almost interchangeably. So what's important, the important way we need to understand this um, in a Christian sense is that the specific meaning of agape that we find in the New Testament, which is sacrificial, self-giving love, when it's used in the New Testament, it is it is almost always used in that sense, okay? So that didn't come about as a result of the early Christian's the other Christians just latching onto a word that already said exactly what they wanted to say and then just grabbing it and using it. Instead, what seems to have happened is that they seem to have settled pretty quickly on this word. And there were, again, there were other words for love in the, in, in the Greek, okay? And what the early Christians did is they, they seem to have settled pretty quickly on this word, agape, as the best available one and then they gave it a new depth of meaning, okay? So in other words, the early Christians did the same thing with the word agape that they did with the ancient notion of virtue. They, they picked it up, soaked it in the message and achievement of Jesus, and then gave it a new sort of life and a, and a greater depth of meaning. With all that background, we need to see here that Paul doesn't imagine that this beautiful and majestic picture of love is something that we can just um, step into on a warm, sunny morning and then just stay there forever without any effort. And the last lines of this passage that we just read in 1 Corinthians 13 make that very clear. The last lines talk about bearing believing, hoping, enduring, and never failing. And all of those words and phrases remind us of moments, hours, days, maybe even years, when there will be things to bear, things to believe against any and all evidence, things to hope for which we don't see at present, things to endure, and things which threaten to make love fail. But the love Paul is speaking of is gritty and it's tough. 
although not in the in the tough love way that we sometimes talk about in our world today, which often seems to be used more as of an excuse to withhold love than to share it. The love Paul is talking about is is enduring. It's elastic, but it's not brittle. It gives, but it stubbornly refuses to break. The love Paul is speaking of is, in fact, the toughest thing that there is in God's world. And it is clearly a virtue. And what do I mean by that? Well, it's not a rule imposed in some kind of arbitrary fashion and then simply obeyed out of a sense of duty. It's not a principle, you know, a good idea, a general rule that a person will either, you know, follow or not follow. It's certainly not a calculated tactic to be employed to produce a desired result. And maybe especially it's not the result of people just doing what comes naturally. At every single point in Paul's catalog of what love does and what love doesn't do, we see where if we're left to our own inclinations, we, we, would, we would be small-minded. We'd be unkind. We'd be jealous, fussy, arrogant, shameless, and so on. And left to myself, there are definitely some things that I wouldn't bear. Many things I wouldn't believe. Several things I simply wouldn't be able to hope for. And a great multitude of things that I wouldn't endure. Left to ourselves and doing what comes naturally, we, we would certainly fail in this great task of love. But the point of love is that love doesn't. And that is why love is a virtue. And as we talked about last week, love is a language to be learned, a musical instrument to be practiced, a, a mountain to be climbed by way of some, some steep and, and, and tricky trails, but with the most amazing view from the top. It is one of the things that will last one of the traits of character which provides a, a genuine anticipation of that complete new creation we're promised at the end of all things. Therefore, it's one of the things that, that can be anticipated in the present on the basis of that future goal which is already given to us in Jesus Christ. It's part of God's future which can be anticipated and witnessed and experienced even here in the present. But nobody, until the time of Christ, seems to have really glimpsed, in, in, in quite the way that the earliest Christians did, the challenge of embodying a virtue so profound, so life-changing, so community-defining, and so revolutionary. Agape sets the bar as high as it can go. And because that's so, the first thing to do is to acknowledge that we have all failed quite spectacularly to clear that height. We're called to practice. If you're a Christian, we are, you're, 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 we're all in this together, and we are called to practice agape in the present, to learn it like a, like a difficult but powerful language, and to practice it like a beautiful but but complex musical instrument, believing that it will last into God's world, God's future world, and it will change today's world.
And in fact, it'll, it'll be gloriously fulfilled in that future world because it's the very essence of the God who we know in Jesus Christ, the God who, who Paul had come to recognize in the face of the crucified and risen Jesus is the God of utter self-giving love. And if, and if those of us who are his followers are called to reflect this God, to bear his image, to be renewed in knowledge according to his image, as Paul says in Colossians 3.10, then it's not surprising that love like this is the key element in that future life and the way we anticipate it here and now. It is one of just three things that will abide or remain along with faith and hope, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It is the supreme example of the principle Paul articulates in chapter 15, just two chapters down the road. At the end of his great discussion about the resurrection, when he says that, that the things we do in the present, in the Lord, none of that is wasted. None of that is in vain. It will all last because love is the language they speak in God's world. And we're summoned to learn it in preparation for the day when God's world and ours will be brought together forever. And I think the place that we learn it best is in marriage, because it is the most intimate human relationship we have. It is the single relationship, and I don't know if you've ever thought about marriage this way, but marriage is the single relationship we have on this earth that is most like in, in intimacy, in scope, in, in every way, it is most like the relationship that exists within the Trinity itself. Love is the music they make in God's courts. And we are invited to learn it and practice it in advance. So love is not just a duty, not even our highest duty. It is our destiny. So, with all of that firmly in view, and with another fortifying sip of coffee, or it may be two, with all that firmly in view, I want to address the first of, of two specific areas that I think we need to live out um, a little bit better. Um, areas in which I think we need to live our love out more urgently and intentionally today in the 21st century. And we're going to talk about one here today, and we're going to talk about the second one next week. So back in John chapter 13, in the upper room, after Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, and after he has announced that one of them will betray him, and after Judas gets up, and leaves to go and betray him. Jesus says this in John 13, 34 and 35. I give you a new command. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. And then he says this. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. 
if you love one another. Now, you've all heard that, if you're a Christian. Um, we have we have quoted those verses endlessly in the church. We all have. No matter what denomination you're part of, we all know those verses, and we've all quoted them quite a bit. And yet, we are still a very, very fragmented group of people so often suspicious of one another, so compartmentalized into our own little clusters, and so often unwilling to even associate with one another. And there, Jesus' words are still ringing in our ears. The way people will know that you are my disciples is by your love for one another. And of course, we all agree to that when we're reading it in our own little groups, doing our own little things. But we so quickly forget it. Planting new churches as though the existing ones didn't exist. What, is, what does that say to the watching world? And, and I'm, I'm not knocking church plants. Sometimes they're, they're necessary for all kinds of good reasons, and I, I do believe that God is involved in many of them. And sometimes those reasons involve the failure of the existing churches to incarnate Jesus in the communities in which they live. And if you've been, if you've been a listener to this podcast for any length of time, you, you know that I, myself, can be one of the harshest critics of the church. And so here we are, hardly out of the gate in this part of our discussion, and we're already neck deep in the tremendous difficulty of calling out wrongdoing and injustice, even in the church, especially in the church, and yet maintaining fellowship and love and seeking healing and restoration. In the New Testament, unity is something the Spirit creates and that we are called to maintain. Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 6, that with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, we are to make every effort, every effort, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is above all and through all and in all. That's the picture. That's the plan. And it absolutely does not work to say, as some in my own spiritual family have said, well, yeah, there's just one body. We're it. And everybody else isn't. That doesn't work. We, can't, we cannot hide behind that anymore. We can't pretend to, to, to make that kind of, that's just, that's sleazy in my book. 
So in other words, yes, we'll, we'll maintain that uni- unity of the Spirit, but only within our own tribe. And we'll get around the uncomfortable parts of that by carving away any other tribe that doesn't look or sound or believe everything just exactly like we do. Because, of course, we're the only ones who have gotten everything right. Oh, my word. Merciful Father God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the world and Lord of our lives, forgive us for our arrogance and our impatience and our utter unwillingness to bear with one another in love. In the New Testament, spiritual energy is given in order to strengthen the whole body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, 1 through 16, Paul talks about the many gifts that God gives to the church. And the danger with those many gifts is that the church goes off with different people doing their own things in different directions. And Paul says, no. The point is that God gives these many gifts in order to build up the body of Christ as a whole, to strengthen it, to be a single, multifaceted multi-skilled, multi-talented body working together to bear the image of God before a world that is reluctant to see it when we're all divided. So what if, what if we saw all of our own fragmented little groups of Christians not as, as the other the other people, the, not as the enemy, but as people to whom God has revealed a different part of his nature and purpose. People who could show us something of God that we might have missed, just as we might gently show them something of God that they might have missed. And what if we learned to listen to one another respectfully, humbly, openly, honestly, I have actually done a good bit of that and found myself greatly enriched in the process. And I found that I have something valuable to share as well. And I will tell you the little bit of that that I've done, which doesn't always feel like a little bit, but I suppose it is compared to what others have done. It's not, it's not been easy. It's not been a piece of cake, and it has not been something that I've done just flippantly saying, oh, none of those differences matter. Differences matter. But you see, all of of that conversation, all of that reconciliation, it takes humility. It takes a tremendous amount of humility. In in Philippians 2, 1 through 5, Paul lays out an extraordinary agenda. He says, make my joy complete by bringing your thinking into line with one another, by having the same love, being united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And I know even within a denomination, sometimes even within a congregation, it's hard to do that. And, and I honestly can't tell you how much mental energy I spend month to month wrestling with that challenge. But I, I think for a lot of us, 
we've forgotten, maybe, maybe myself included, we've forgotten that that is an imperative. It's not optional. Because as Jesus says, this love for one another is the thing. It is the thing that will show the world that God is among us. But to get there is going to take an awful lot of bearing, believing, hoping, and enduring with a love that does not, will not fail. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week where we'll continue this. As always, I'd appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, blah, 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 wherever you get your podcast. It's out there everywhere. Um, Check out our website, thejesussociety.com. You can find us on YouTube and Odyssey. Um, If you search for the Jesus Society podcast on either YouTube or Odyssey, you'll find us. If you'd like to support the show and our related ministry, click on the support TJS link on the Jesus Society website to find out how. Thanks for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved.